0: Amen. You guys can have a seat. Thanks, Natalie. Sorry I threw that curveball with the Aramaic in there, but you did a good job with it. It's good to admit when we don't know what we're saying. That's fine. Um, How are you guys doing? Good? Wow, that was lame. Okay. I'll ask you another time how you're doing, and I hope to get a better response. Um, So... Those of you who uh, are familiar with our Bible reading plan that happens on our website, we blast it out on social media, you'll notice that I threw you a little bit of a curveball. Our passage this week was Psalm 22, and uh, Natalie read from Matthew chapter 27, um, and you'll see what that's about in just a minute. But um, for starters, so imagine for a second that you and I, we went out for coffee, not like all of you, but like one-on-one, right? Uh, we went out for coffee, which asked me where to go for coffee, I know. Uh, I know the best places. Um, but imagine if we go out for coffee and I, as Pastor Isaac, right, I just dropped this on you. I said, honestly, I'm done. I'm, I'm feeling so far from God, and whenever I pray, I have no confidence that he's listening, I feel like giving up. And not only do I feel like he's not actually there, I really feel close to anyone else in my life and that they would understand, and I have no idea what to do. How would you look at me if you're, as your pastor if I confided that in you? Would it change the way that you see me? Am I allowed to even do that? So this morning... I would really love it if, by the end of our time together, you have completely dismantled any image of the happy-go-lucky Christian in your mind. Although, if you spend a couple minutes with Pastor Lorenzo, that will happen too. Um, but uh, <laughs> love that man. Um, <laughs> but just honestly, this—I don't want this to be another um, "God is with you in the midst of suffering." message. For those of you who read our Bible reading plan in Psalm 22 this week, that's really what it's all about, uh, is the reality of suffering and the depths of our suffering and how far they can possibly go. This is not, yeah, God's with you in the midst of your suffering. This is really more about acknowledging the feeling of, yeah, but what if he isn't? What if it feels like that's not true? Um, Because sometimes merely just confessing the truth that God is always with us and that he will never leave us or forsake us doesn't remedy the feeling that he actually has. And that might not be where you're at today, um, but for those who can't relate to being in intense suffering, a question for you might be, do I even have a relationship with God that is vital enough where I would notice if he was distant? Do we long to be with God in such a way where, when we are not, things don't feel right? Or have we kind of just gotten to a point where we can not we can just function, like, fine without him, and if he shows up and does something, then that's just the icing on the cake? And what we'll see today is, as we read through Psalm 22, and as was read for us, Matthew 27, There's an experience of God's absence and that that was the last straw for King David, the author of Psalm 22, and for Jesus himself. That they could endure all sorts of pain and ridicule from others, but if you remove the experience of the closeness to God, things start to unravel as they should because we were made for deep communion with God. That is our purpose for who we are as creation. We are meant to be in relationship with God, but we have gotten used to how things are, the status quo. And it's easier sometimes if we don't expect him to show up or to come through for us because then we're not really disappointed. We don't like that feeling of depending on somebody who doesn't show up. So we'd rather guard ourselves against disappointment. We do that with others, and we definitely do that with God. But what we're going to see this morning is that faith means not consigning those feelings of abandonment or loneliness or isolation to doubt or unbelief. It means not stuffing those feelings down and labeling them as weak or ungodly. Because faith means feeling those things out loud to God and never letting go of the hope of God's deliverance. As we've seen throughout this series that we're in right now called Oddity, it's very easy to miss the main point of Jesus's words and actions. That is who Jesus is. He often was odd to the people and to us today but possibly one of the most misunderstood things that Jesus ever said was what he spoke from the cross that was read for us. What he said at the height of his agony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That's how it's supposed to sound. Um, Martin Luther said these might be the greatest words in all of scripture but some of us don't really understand why. Many throughout history have taken Jesus' cry of agony to mean that he was actually wrong the whole time, that he was just a guy who thought that he was doing what God wanted him to do, and that God was going to save him from being executed, and at the last minute, his deliverance would come, but that this outcry was him finally realizing that he had it all wrong. And Christians even often wrestle with how Jesus, who is supposed to be the son of God, can get to this very point where he would speak something like this to God. And then the unspoken thought that follows is, if Jesus can't even keep it together, if he can't keep his faith intact, what hope is there for me? But what we're gonna see is that Jesus's cry my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is even more heartbreaking than it sounds, but it is also one of the most hopeful things that he could have said. Because the key to understanding Jesus' word lies in the remainder of the psalm in the Old Testament that he quoted from, Psalm chapter 22. And in that time, it was common practice among the rabbis to quote a single line from the Hebrew Bible, but be referring to the larger context that sits around that verse. And we do this when we like sing the first line of a song, right? But we're actually talking about the whole song. We say, I don't know, here comes the sun. And then, like, all of you know what comes next. Doo 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 do Thank you. Okay. Wow, that, that could have gone over terribly. Um, so, why does Jesus? Quote this Psalm. Let's begin to read it together. Psalm chapter 22, verse 1. It'll be on the screen. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Let's just sit with that for a moment. What I want us to see is that, first of all, Jesus quotes these words because he is modeling for us what it looks like to have faith at the point of greatest possible suffering. He is displaying for us that the language of faith can handle all of the feelings that we could possibly experience. However, the original context of this psalm that Jesus quotes was some unknown trial that was being suffered by King David in Israel. And theologian uh, Gerald Wilson says this about that relationship. He says, if we read these words only as words about Jesus we ignore the original and continuing word of God to us this psalm in its entirety represents. Only as we understand what the psalm means on its own are we better able to understand why Jesus chose these words to reflect his own agony of abandonment by his father at the final moment of crisis. So this is what we're going to do, to uncover what the psalm says and how we can pray this psalm as well. This is a psalm that asks, what does it look like to be honest with God at your very lowest point? What does it look like to bring your whole self to God and not fragment or compartmentalize ourselves because we're afraid of what might happen? Notice that it says, my God. This is an expression of faith in the midst of feeling rejected by God. He's not cursing the heavens where some distant God might be listening to him or might not. But he's allowing himself to feel the depth of his pain by continuing to recognize that this is his God that he doesn't feel connected to. And he says it twice, my God, my God. This is not just like some poetic expression. This is real, raw, emotional intensity. And if you are currently walking through suffering or you know somebody who is, I would encourage you to pick up uh, Tim Keller's book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. This is what he says about this psalm, and I'm quoting him because he always says it better. And uh, when he stops saying it better, I'll stop quoting him. He says, Be brutally honest with yourself and with God about your pain and sorrow. Do not deny or try too much to control your feelings in the name of being faithful. God is very patient with us when we are desperate. Pour out your soul to him. But we must balance this with trust in who he is, just as Jesus did, being both entirely vulnerable and yet use the language of God's own word to express it. That is what Jesus did. But then the mood of the psalm changes in verse 3. It says, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. He's reminding himself of something here. And what he's saying is, you delivered those people that I read about in the Bible all the time. Why am I not experiencing the same thing? Why am I not experiencing the same kind of relationship with you that I see other people have or that I read about in the Bible? Perhaps you have felt this as well. God, why are you not acting now in the same way that you acted then? Commentator uh, Robert Davidson says, says this. He says, this is not the collapse of faith. This is someone being torn apart because he cannot deny the reality of faith, nor can he reconcile it with the savage reality of life as he now experiences it. He's not saying, God, I'm done with you. He's saying, God, you are my God. Why am I feeling this way? Why are you not coming through for me? Then this rejected feeling only gets compounded when he gets ridicule, and receives rejection from those around him. In verse 6, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Feeling rejection from God is only made worse by rejection from others for having faith in God when it seems like everything is going wrong for you. It's just salt in the wounds. Notice it says in verse 6 that he's despised by the people, not just random people, by the people who are supposed to be there for him, his own people group. When we encounter trials, sometimes we find that people start sharing their opinions with us, probably things that they should have kept to themselves, if you know what I mean, right? Sometimes things that they might have kept otherwise to themselves, but they think that the occasion of your trial is a time to share with you. Sometimes these same people try to dictate the terms by which God can show up in your life. And then we start to believe these things. Like, if God was close to you, you shouldn't be going through this at all. Or even well-meaning Christians who would say, there's a good reason why this is all happening. And you're like, yeah, right. But there's nothing more insidious than what is happening here. Than experiencing cynicism from people when you are clinging to faith in the midst of suffering, when you take an unpopular stand for your faith around people who are quietly skeptical about God, and then things start to go poorly for you, that quiet skepticism starts to turn into ridicule. Just as the psalmist says elsewhere in Psalm 42, as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These words can cut like a knife. And this is exactly the experience of Jesus on the cross. Earlier in Matthew chapter 27, before the passage that was read for us, the onlookers say the exact same words that we just read. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Onlookers, the people standing around, always fail to understand how God actually works and what actually happens to people who belong to him? The category they had is Messiah is supposed to win. God's people are supposed to have victory. If this guy was really sent from God, everything's supposed to be fine. The question for us today is: Do we also have a category for God calling us to experience hardship? Not can we go through hardship and will God still be there, but Do we have a category for God actually calling us to experience hardship? And then further, what about hardship that occurs in complete obscurity without any redemptive outcome in sight? Where others look at your life and try to make sense of it for you and try to encourage you without minimizing the discomfort instead of allowing you to lean into it because God has actually called you to it. Sometimes we tend to think that there's a payoff right around the corner where God will show us what all of the hardship that we've encountered is really about and then other people will finally see how righteous we really are and we've been vindicated like oh that's why she you know decided to be honest and then got fired from her job or that's why she didn't lie to get a leg up on her coworkers. So my kids were uh, watching that movie, Evan Almighty, the other day. It's on Netflix right now. Oh, <laughs> not Steve Carell's finest work, let me just say. Uh, it's, it's funny, but um, terrible rendition of the story of Noah. Just don't watch it and then, like, read the Genesis account of Noah right next to each other. You'll just be disappointed. But that kind of happens in the movie for the main character, right? He's like the Noah character, and... God tells him to build an ark, and he's a politician, and then he loses his job, and everyone's, like, criticizing him and saying, you're an idiot, you're crazy, and then he gets on the boat, and all the animals start coming on, and then the scene, like, right before something happens is, like, people are standing outside the ark, and they're saying, you are an idiot, like, it's 75 degrees and sunny, like, there's no possible rain, and then the thunderstorm comes, and everyone's like... Get on the ark! And like, we long for that moment, right? When all of the criticism that we experience finally gets turned and everything gets vindicated, and those people are like, oh, you're the stupid ones now, huh? Yeah. But we don't always get that moment. And Jesus on the cross does not waste his last breaths trying to argue his case as to why his suffering is meaningful and purposeful. He doesn't try to prove those people wrong by jumping off of the cross and saying, hey, even though he could have, he speaks the language of faith. The onlookers say he saved others, he cannot save himself, but he saved others precisely because he did not save himself. He was experiencing God-forsakenness for no other reason than for our salvation. What are our common responses when we perceive God's absence? Some of us go towards the pessimistic route, like, I knew it. I knew God was never really there. He let me down, just like everybody else. That's some of our response. Some of us respond through kind of like a legalistic understanding of like there must be something I did wrong and that's why this is happening to me. And some of us just have kind of like a more naive optimism like everything's going to get better, it'll be just fine. But what is David's response in the psalm? Verse 9. It says, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. So first he looks back at how God was faithful to other people, but he's not experiencing it at this point. And now he looks back at God's faithfulness to him since he was a baby because his reflex is to trust God in the midst of his trials, but he still doesn't feel close to God. But the muscle of faith in him has been trained for situations like this. Faith in small matters has produced a genuine trust in God beyond logic when things get seriously hard. And yet the closeness that he describes here in trusting God like a baby trusts his mother makes this feeling of abandonment even more severe. In other words, he's saying, I've never known a time when you're not with me. This can't really be what's happening. So what else is going on? And that is what we can ask of Jesus' words as well. What else was going on other than just his feeling forsaken? The second reason that Jesus uttered those words of abandonment on the cross was to call our attention to the fulfillment that was going on, the fulfillment of the Messiah's story. The final puzzle piece and the climax of history itself was all happening at that moment on the cross. In this Psalm, we have a vivid depiction of the scene of the crucifixion a thousand years before the time of Jesus. Read with me in verse 12. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bishan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots." This vivid description gives us a scene of exactly what was happening to Jesus a 1,000 years before it would actually happen. And in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew's account of the crucifixion, he had been leading up to this moment for the entire chapter before what was read for us by Natalie. It says in chapter 27, verse 35, "...when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots." Verse 39, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. Verse 43, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And finally, the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was not just saying these words to represent his actual feelings, although it was true. He's calling us to recognize that this was the moment that all of history had been leading up to and it was happening right then. Not just in the direct quotations from Psalm 22, but also in these vivid descriptions of the suffering that the psalmist is going to, all pointing towards the cross. It's incredible to read this description of a crucifixion written before crucifixion was even a thing. That was not even a form of punishment back when this psalm was written. But the scripture says that Jesus came in the fullness of time, which is when the Roman Empire that was occupying Israel at that time was employing crucifixion as a means of capital punishment so that Jesus could fulfill these words that we read today. And the author Charles Briggs says... These sufferings transcend those of any historical sufferer, with the single exception of Jesus Christ. They find their exact counterpart in the sufferings on the cross. They are more vivid in their realization of that dreadful scene than the story of the Gospels. But yet, Jesus died in complete misunderstanding and obscurity. At the end, of his time on the cross, it says that the onlookers were still saying, let's, gonna, let's see if Elijah's gonna show up to save him, and then he dies. There's no elements of hope in that narrative. It, it has all the marks of a complete failed messiah but what we also need to see is not only was he fulfilling the prediction of the sufferings of the Messiah and demonstrating what faith looks like in suffering, a third reason that Jesus spoke these words is that it was actually happening. He actually was being forsaken by the Father. He is the only one who could speak those words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And have them be entirely true of his experience. Jesus was being forsaken in a way that no one ever has and no one ever will. He bore the full weight of our sin and God's wrath against sin on the cross and for the first time ever was separated from his heavenly father. Just as the hymn says, how great the pain of searing loss, the father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one, bring many sons to glory. But Jesus knew that this had to happen, so why did he ask the question, why have you forsaken me? Was that rhetorical or was it real? Because we don't always get to know the answer to the question why in the moment of suffering. But Jesus did. And God always knows the redemptive purpose behind the suffering that his people go through, while we don't often get to see it. And the famous preacher Charles Spurgeon says of this moment, Hell has for its fiercest flame the separation of the soul from God. Jesus is forsaken because our sins had separated us and our God. So what is the answer to Jesus' question? Why have you forsaken me? The answer for those who will place our faith in him is for me. He was forsaken so that you and I never will be And this points us towards the last movement that happens in the psalm, which shows us that all of the suffering that this person experienced was not in vain but was actually accomplishing something. Verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. What happened in this change of attitude that is so abrupt and dramatic in the psalm from everything's Terrible and God has forsaken me, to I will tell of your name to my brothers. It doesn't describe what happened in this person's life that caused this change. When all of the evidence pointed to complete abandonment by God and destruction and hopelessness, it changes on a dime. So, how can he go from the depth of despair to telling others what God has done for him in an instant? The answer is in the story of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus didn't trick himself into thinking better about his situation while he was on the cross just so that he could maintain faith. He didn't think happy thoughts. He didn't meditate until he transcended his circumstances. God did something. In the narrative of Jesus, this has to speak of the resurrection. Jesus experienced vindication, but not until after He gave up his life. And then from there, we see the effects that his suffering had. Not only did he suffer and experience vindication, but God actually used his suffering to do something far beyond the imagination of anybody that was looking. Psalm 22, verse 25. From you comes my praise in the great congregation, shall bow down all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Or as the Greek translation said, it is finished, which were Jesus' last words on the cross. The darkness and the confusion and the abandonment by God breaks into the light of rescue for the entire world. His suffering accomplished the gift of salvation to be offered for all people. Friends, if this is the result of the suffering of God's Son, which on the surface looked like just another disappointment, we can also have confidence that our suffering is far from pointless, even if we can't see what the outcome is going to be. More than this, it gives us hope that there is always more going on than what we can see in the fog of our own trials. Imagine if we never allowed our circumstances to frame how we view God. Imagine if we never interpreted our circumstances in such a way that it affected how God views us. I get really good at interpreting things that happen to me as signs from God. (laughs) Maybe you can relate. Parking ticket, God hates me. Amazon package goes missing, God's trying to tell me something, what is it? Right? Of course, God allows the consequences of stupid things that we do to play out so that we learn from them like a good parent does but the reasons he allows real suffering often remain hidden but what we see here is that if the death of the Messiah could accomplish the most incredible rescue in human history can't we believe that God can weave the storylines of our own trials into his plan for us? In the death of Jesus, we witness the death of death. A good friend of mine, um, I remember having lunch with him back in college, and his dad had been suffering from ALS since uh, he was a kid. And his dad was raised in a strong you know, Christian family that went to church every Sunday, uh, and his dad was an incredible man of faith, um, and never gave up on God, even in the midst of his suffering when his faculties totally deteriorated and he couldn't even speak anymore. But his, his son, my friend, he could never bring himself to the point where he cried out and asked God why it was happening because he thought that wasn't supposed to happen. He wasn't supposed to do that. You know, He was just supposed to like believe that God had his best intentions and just keep walking just keep going but i remember having lunch with him one time and he he always had a solid faith but he looked different that day and i asked him like what had happened and he said i finally told god how mad i was about what was going on i finally just i cried out to him and asked him why it was happening and i didn't get an answer i didn't get an answer but I know that he's there. And his dad passed away just a couple years later. But in Jesus' death is the death of death. The power that it held over the uncertainty of what happens after life has been dismantled as Jesus rises from the dead showing that God has the last word. Not our pain, not our tears, not the ridicule of other people, and not even death. Jesus was forsaken so that you and I could be brought near and that nothing can ever separate us from his love. As the apostle Paul says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Please pray with me.